So, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Last week we uh, uh, did our first chapter on uh, giving, uh, which is just a strange topic uh, in general to talk about at church. Some people feel like that's all churches ever talk about. Uh, but if you've been, very, been here very long, it feels like we never talk about that because we just work our way through the scriptures. And so it just so happens that we're in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians this week, and that uh, puts us in this place uh, and for some reason, my slides are like four slides ahead. They're not on the first slide. And so there we go. That's better. Whoops. Now I did it myself. All right. Just ignore the slides for a minute. I'll figure out how to get back to the first slide soon. Um, but uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, what I would uh, uh, have you guys just kind of think about in this as we, as we look at finances from a biblical perspective, uh, I want you to just kind of set aside some of the things you have known in the past. Some people have had kind of some bad experiences with churches and, and giving, and so we talked a little bit about that last week, and uh, some people uh, are, feel like they're just kind of pressured all the time for money, and so as a church, we've tried to make that not a thing. We've not wanted to pressure people. We want people to be able to give as an act of worship, uh, but I do recognize that there have been some abuses throughout the the history of the church, certainly if you look back at uh, part of the Protestant Reformation came from this whole idea, uh, one of the things they were upset about was the abuse uh, that was brought about by the Catholic Church's uh, pursuit of finances in order to build these amazing uh, places that they felt like they needed in order to do ministry and to uh, bring in all this uh, uh, extra money. And so they started doing some just some really weird things like, uh, for instance, they would sell indulgences, which means, you know, if you give enough money to the church, it's okay to sin, which is kind of the idea that they had come up with and uh, started applying pressure in some very strange and, and uh, I would even at times say evil ways. Uh, it really has just caused some real harm, but it's not like the evangelical church, the reformed Protestant church has uh, been uh, absent of these types of things. Uh, I was reading an article this week and it was, it was opinion, it was an opinion piece written by somebody who had been an elder at a church for 20 some years and uh, started to realize over time that what he was seeing in scripture wasn't matching up to what he saw in his own church. He described uh, what he called the Sunday morning stick up uh, as he was describing the, the time of offering at his church and uh, uh, it, it was actually kind of a foreign concept to me because I have been in churches that take offerings. I'd never been in a church that took an offering like he described. His, his uh, experience was uh, that Sunday morning they would, like a church often does, they would pass the plate around and people would give. Uh, but oftentimes the pastor would say, the, the Lord has told me that's not enough and he would pass the plate around again. <laughs> And then uh, this one particular Sunday that he was describing, uh, the pastor said, you're not going to believe this, but God has once again told me. And they, so they took up a third offering, but this time he started like kind of working people up into a lather of this. Oh my goodness, the Lord needs more from you. He needs more from you. And he says, the Lord's asking you to run forward and give offerings. And there was just this surge of people running forward and people were taking off their jewelry and their fancy shoes and just throwing them on the altar of the church. And at that point he said, this is kind of a red flag for me. This, this, kind, of feels, this kind of feels out of line to me a little bit. And I think he probably caught that cue pretty, pretty accurately. That is a little bit of a red flag. That's a little bit of an awkward thing uh, that was happening in that particular church. I don't, however, believe that that is 
every Christian church. I think those are some of the outliers, some of those that have made some bad decisions over the years uh, to kind of deal with finances. So what we want to just continue to make sure we're doing is looking at what the scripture says and try to ask ourselves how we as believers want to handle financial giving within the confines of God's kingdom, within the confines of his ministry. Uh, And that goes well beyond just our church walls, as we saw last week Uh, In chapter 8, the thing that really gets Paul discussing this, uh, he's in the process of taking a a special offering up for the churches of Judea, the city of Jerusalem in particular. Uh, They have kind of two things going on at the same time. Number one, uh, they have great persecution. The Jews were not happy with all the Jews that were coming to salvation in Jesus Christ. And so it caused quite a bit of conflict. On top of that, you have the Romans. Uh, who don't like to see conflict in their cities. And so that caused even more issues. There's all this kind of stress and anxiety and struggle, the persecution. Then you add to that, a famine comes upon the land. And so you have this persecuted church that now also has no provision because of the famine of the land. So Paul uh, made it his goal to go around to these various churches that he had planted and to give them opportunity to give to care for the church of Corinth. And so this is the idea. So this uh, discussion, really isn't so much about uh, your everyday giving. This is kind of a special circumstance beyond normal giving. Uh, But in it, we find some of the clearest teachings in the New Testament about about how God intends for us Uh, to invest ourselves financially in his kingdom. And uh, for me anyway, uh, they're they're quite gracious words. They're quite encouraging words. Uh, They're not things that I I feel like wear us down, uh, but they really give us the opportunity to worship God uh, through our finances. That being said, I do want to say this about the Apostle Paul. Uh, He is really, really good at writing things in such a way that it's like filled with grace, 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 grace. I don't know if grace is a word, but it's filled with grace, but there's just a little spank at the end of it there. And that's kind of what's going on in this particular, these two chapters, like Paul is like, oh man, it's such a wonderful gift if you ever get around to giving it. And so he's kind of really worried because the Corinthians, he's been promising all these other churches, like the Corinthians had this wonderful idea They were the first ones to do it, and now all these other churches are giving, but Paul's like, I still haven't gotten anything from Corinth. And so he's just making sure that the Corinthians follow through with their promise. And that's what he's really looking at here in this first couple of verses. In verse one, he says, for it is superfluous. I'm having trouble with that word today. It is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I've sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift 
and not be uh, not affected by covetousness. So that's the, the concern of the Apostle Paul. He's been going to all these other churches bragging about the, the promises of the church of Corinth, of the region of, of Achaia there. And so again, we saw this at the beginning of chapter of 2 Corinthians, that there are several churches in that region there that are all part of this, although it's addressed to the one specific church in Corinth. Uh, their desire to give has encouraged other people to give. Their desire to be invested in this has encouraged other people to be invested in it. Uh, He just wants to make sure they follow through with that promise now as he's traveled around the region from church to church and said, well, you will not believe how amazing those Corinthians are. Uh, They're just amazing. They're going to give all this money to help out. They've all made all these promises. They're going to give a certain percentage every week and they've been planning to do this for an entire year. They've been setting this aside for an entire year, setting aside this money. And we're about to go get the money. And the other churches were like, well, we want to help the Corinthian church. And so Paul's kind of been bragging about them a little bit. And now it's coming to the point where it's time to collect the money. And he's a little bit worried that his bragging may not actually be fulfilled by their actual actions. That their uh, intentions might have been better than their actual follow-through. That's what he's a little bit concerned about. So uh, he brings this to their attention uh, and, and just lets them know, you know, it would be pretty embarrassing uh, if I sent along some Macedonians who have nothing but decided to give to this offering. They've already given. If I send them along and they come to your church to help pick up this offering and you guys just didn't do the thing you promised, well, that would be shameful. <laughs> To me and you. Paul's kind of worried a little bit about the reputation of himself and the church there. And his concern, I think, is laid out for us there in verse 5 at the very end. He says, be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Uh, He's concerned that the people there might start to look at this sum of money that's been promised and maybe even building up and think to themselves, you know... There's probably other things we could do with that money. You know, we do kind of need a new chariot for the pastor right now. Maybe it's not time to be giving to the church in Jerusalem. You know, uh, our hymnals, they're starting to wear out a little bit. It's just kind of these little things can kind of sneak in and you start to think to yourself, well, why should I be giving this money to another church when I could just use this for our ministry? He's worried about covetousness. Or on the individual level, uh, promises being made that I, I want to give to this, I want to give to this, I want to give to this. But my furnace just went out. I know I made a promise, but that was before my furnace went out. <laughs> or I know I made a promise, but uh, all of my children had birthdays again this year. I didn't see it coming. I just had no idea that was going to happen. Christmas happened again this December, and I'm just, you know, I just, I just... I just feel like I kind of need to take care of those things. There's just this this concern that covetousness might move in, that you might be more now concerned about what you have and and not want to give it to others. He was concerned that this kind of delayed promise. So with that, he then starts to give us just a a good, I think, outline of how to think about uh, how you can give. And I would summarize it just with this one phrase that he's going to give us in verse 7. It's that God loves a cheerful giver. And so the way I would look at this passage now, God loves a cheerful giver, I think you can take all the things that Paul says around that to help you determine how to be a cheerful giver. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to show us how we can be a cheerful giver. There's ways that we can give that we can do so cheerfully. 
Now, prior to becoming a Christian, I probably would have thought to myself, the only way I can be a cheerful giver is if I have so much money, it doesn't bother me to give things away. Like that used to be the way I thought, really. Like I can give cheerfully as long as it doesn't bother me that much. But now I get to look at the scriptures and kind of see if there's maybe something in the scripture that can kind of give us a little bit more guidance, a little bit more specific nature than that. Uh, And I certainly believe uh, that it has very little to do with compelling people, taking multiple offerings, begging people, pleading with people, uh, and, and really trying to work people up into this frenzy where they see everybody else is doing this and everybody else is doing this. And oh my goodness, that person put his shoes on the altar. Well, I'm going to put my wedding ring on the altar. I just this, this whole kind of craziness that can kind of ensue in people sometimes where I think they do that and they have this amazing moment of worship and then they go home and they think, what have I done? Like, I can't believe I'm driving home barefoot today. <laughs> like, how did this happen? And the poor gal that gives her wedding ring, the husband's going to be like, you did what now? (laughs) Well, I'm married to Jesus now. Well, (laughs) I didn't know about that. I guess that's different, right? Like there's just these, these concerns that maybe sometimes we make these promises or even we give big, but our heart's not really behind it. So Paul wants to address some of those things. So uh, let's look here first at verse six, a spiritual principle that we see all throughout scripture. Now this I say He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, uh, this is just a very common uh, theme in Scripture, but it's typically responding to the idea in the Old Testament of actually sowing and reaping, of, of literally putting seed in the ground, sowing, and then the more seed you put in the ground... The more harvest you get at the end of that. That's the the general illustration that's being used to speak about financial giving. That if you don't put very much seed in the ground, you shouldn't be shocked if you don't get very much produce, right? So if you put, you know, uh, one carrot seed in the ground, you're likely not going to get a whole bunch of carrots. I think that's different with strawberries and zucchini. Those things just kind of take over. But for some things, if you just if one seed is going to bring one thing, and if you need lots of things, you've got to put a lot of seed in the ground. That's kind of the very general idea that he's using there. But he's taking that agricultural concept, and he's doing a similar thing that uh, Jesus and others did in the scriptures, is turning it into a financial way of thinking of investing in God's kingdom. That when you invest or sow a lot into the kingdom of God, there's also a great reaping that comes after that. There's a lot that comes out of that. Uh, some people have misused this teaching though. They have made the conclusion that if I can invest a lot of money financially into a ministry, and they'll even say it like this, particularly some of these kind of, I would call them name it, claim it pastors, the prosperity gospel, where they would say, would you sow seeds into our ministry and God will return to you tenfold, a hundredfold what you've invested uh, you'll just open your, uh, your uh, mailbox one day and there's just going to be a random check in there and you won't know why, but it'll just be God returning on your investment. Uh, I've heard people even take uh, uh, sections out of Malachi, for instance, and kind of take these things to a level spiritually that were never, I don't think, intended by God when he put them there. Uh, so what I would like you to, to grasp about this is that the return on investment is not always in a, a, a financial return. That God returns your investment in a number of ways, and he's going to actually give us one of those in verse 10. I'm going to jump ahead. We'll come back to verse 10 and look at it more clearly later. But just so you can understand what I'm trying to say here, Paul introduces the idea of reaping and sowing there in verse 6. But in verse 10, he says at the end of that, 
Um, well, I'll just read the whole verse. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So the harvest isn't necessarily a financial harvest. He's not saying like if you invest 10% in the kingdom of God, God promises a 14% investment or a return on your investment. So if that's the case, if 10% is good, 20% must be better because now if I've invested 20% financially into the kingdom of God, I'm gonna get 14% on the 20% instead of the 10% and that's just more money for me. That's the wrong attitude towards it. But he does want us to recognize that whenever we invest in kingdom of God work, whether it's time, energy, or money, there is a return from God, but it's not always financial. That return, as he says here, here's one of his examples, that return is a harvest of your righteousness. There's some sort of harvest of righteousness that happens there. Uh, Similar to the concept that Jesus will talk about in various places of storing up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. Uh, The way I would look at this actually most clearly for me is it really doesn't matter. I can invest everything I have. No matter how much I invest into the kingdom of God, I will always receive more in eternity. It doesn't matter. If I invest every single penny I have, what I receive in eternity is an infinite amount of times better than what I personally invested There's this reaping and sowing there. Now, Paul is using this in a financial term here for the Corinthians. He wants them to understand that there is some sort of return on their investment. I just don't want us to take it to the false place where we think that's a a, a number, a, a dollar amount. I think that's a mistake that some people use in their motivation in order to give. But if you can give knowing that there's something in return, it's a little bit easier to give, isn't it? It's easier to give if you know there's a return on your investment. Uh, For instance, a few years ago, uh, the church here uh, started a um, uh, somewhat of a retirement plan for those people who are serving on staff here. And it's a pretty simple plan because it's called a simple IRA. Um, But the simple plan and the idea is though, for me, uh, you can invest a certain amount in that, but this is the beauty of it. They will match up to 2%. So if you take 2% of your check, they match it. And so we've had over the years, different people that worked here that put no money into that. And I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't make any sense. There's an immediate return of 100%, right? If you put in $10 and that's under 10% of your income, they will match that $10. That's free money. I can easily give to that retirement plan, right? Now it's the after 2% where I'm like, "Eh, I don't know how much return I'm going to ever get on that investment because that follows the stock market. And I'm not, you know, financially wise enough to know whether that's a good plan or a bad plan. But uh, when when I can look at this and say it's an immediate return, I can cheerfully give to that retirement plan. I think to myself, this is a good deal. I, I can see that there's some sort of return. What Paul is trying to tell the people in Corinth is that as they've invested in the kingdom of God, God will, in fact, return to them some of that investment, which we'll talk about more uh, as we work through this. But just understand, it doesn't have to be a financial return from God. As he says later in verse 10, it'll be a return or a harvest of righteousness. Well, verse seven, uh, he continues on beyond this idea of reaping and sowing. He says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. Again, that's the goal, to be a cheerful giver. Uh, But how can we do that? He gives us a couple of ideas here how we can cheerfully give. In verse 7, 
Uh, The first is, do as you purpose in your own heart. If you made the decision, if it was what you purposed in your heart, ask yourself, how much can I give and still be happy about it? That's the way you decide. How much can I give and still be happy about it? It's kind of this nice little dividing line. Uh, and anybody that's married has had to have these conversations. But when you're, when you're married and it comes down to giving to various things, whether it's the, you know, the veterans fund or the police are calling all the time or your car warranty is expiring or whatever it is, everybody wants something from you, right? If you as a husband and, and a wife sit down together and have a conversation about how much you want to give, you can kind of judge how much the other person wants to give by the picture of pain on their face. So you, you know, you, and, and for, I don't know, maybe this doesn't work like this at your house. For us, it's this very tentative negotiation where each one of us says, well, how much would you like to give? I don't know, what were you thinking? And so then we like throw out a number and, and then we kind of judge how the other person, and this is what I do. This is, um, I'm giving away all my great negotiating techniques, but <laughs> I usually have a number in mind but I'm always afraid that my number is going to be too big. And so I always will just devalue my number a little bit just to be safe because I don't want to cause any pain. But if I say my number that's a little bit lower and Sheila wants to give more, then I'm like, yes, we're on the same page. But the real win is to get Sheila to say it first. Because then I'm like, all right, she said her number, I'm comfortable with that, let's go forward. This is just easier. That's just the way that I like to negotiate. But the idea is you start to find that level of giving where you've made the decision, you've determined, you've purposed in your own heart. This for some believers is a little bit new. Uh, They've never thought of it in those terms. They've always felt like there's some obligated amount. And if they don't give this obligated amount, that they're somehow guilty of sin or that they're somehow less of a believer. No, this is saying, for God's perspective, he's saying, I want you to give as a matter of worship to me. And then everything that you give is a gift. It's not grudgingly. It's just what you've purposed to give. He says it a little bit different as he goes on. It's not just as you've purposed in your heart. He says not grudgingly or under compulsion. And so those are the two, those are kind of your two limits on this. Not grudgingly, like I'm going to give this money, but I'm not happy about it. Don't give me that money. I don't want your grudge money. Keep your grudge money. That's different than this is what I want to give and I'm, I'm happy to give it to you. That's the money I want, right? That's the money that God wants from us. If I'm a God who's watching his people to see which ones are worshiping me and I see somebody give happily and I see somebody give grudgingly, which one is worship? The one that's given happily, I think. Now we did talk about last week from time to time you can give sacrificially, but again, It's according to your purpose. It's according to your plan that there are times that you decide, you know, in this situation, it is going to be a lot for me to give, but I'm happy to do it. I'm willing to take that sacrifice because I so believe in what I'm investing in. So yes, you can give sacrificially, but even if you're giving sacrificially, you need to be willing to give it in such a way that you can do it not grumpily (laughs) because God doesn't like a grumpy giver. He likes a cheerful giver. 
The other piece of that, though, is he says not under compulsion. Uh, this is, uh, again, I think, something that particularly young Christians, uh, but in general, I think Christians sometimes struggle with where they just feel this obligation. Like they feel some sort of pressure. Like, like if I don't give this money, somehow I'm less saved, maybe. Or somehow God's just not happy with me. Or the church will be unhappy with me. Or my friends will see. Uh, one of the things that I actually have struggled with as a pastor, you know, pre-COVID, we actually passed the little bags around. And uh, this was always a struggle of mine. Sheila and I have always given online. And so we just had this regularly occurring. We made the determination, this is how much we were going to give. So we'd give online. And so then Sunday morning would come around and the bag's coming by. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I'm the pastor. And everybody sees I'm not putting anything in the bag. Well, that's messed up. That's my brain, right? But you start to think about this compulsion. Some of those compulsions are real. Like really, literally somebody saying, you must give this much. But some of them are just in your own heart a little bit. These built up imaginary things. That, frankly, I don't think anybody even noticed. Except the deacons that were passing out the bags. They noticed, I'll tell you that right now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but in general, I think most people in here aren't concerned or watching what I'm doing at all. It's the same way with me in communion, by the way. First service, you don't have this problem, but I take communion first service because I sit with my wife. But second service, third service, I don't take communion. Because to me, it feels un unnecessary. To me, it feels almost like flippant. And so, but when I do it together with my wife, it's that first service when we're all together. But then the rest of the services at second and third service, I think to myself, did anybody notice I didn't grab communion? There's this compulsion on me. There's this peer pressure on me that I feel. And again, that compulsion can come both through the authorities in the church, right? Those who maybe are over the church, but sometimes it just comes from the idea of peer pressure, of others kind of looking at you and you think to yourself, well, this is what I feel like I should give. This is what I would love to give but I'm afraid somebody else won't see it as enough. So I'm going to give more under compulsion. Well, God says, don't give the more in that case. Give what you could give cheerfully, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, whatever you can give happily. That's the amount you should give. Now, that makes it a little bit harder because you have to do some work then. I'll be honest, there is a little bit of me uh, that really likes rules. There's a part of me that's just easier to just follow the rules. I don't even always need to know what the rules are there for. I just, if it's the rule, I'll follow it because then I don't have to think about anything. So when I first came to Christ and I was first told about the idea of tithing, to me, that made perfect sense, not because it made sense, but just because at least I don't have to think about it anymore. But let me ask you, if you don't have to think about it anymore, is it even worship? If you're not even connected to it anyway, is it really an act of worship or is it just, eh, one more thing I do? But when I came to understand more of a New Testament understanding of Scripture, that we give according to our ability, what we can give cheerfully, now I had to be invested in what I'm giving somehow emotionally. And then it really does become worship for us. It really becomes this opportunity where we get to worship our Savior. That's the attitude that God's looking for, that you can cheerfully do this. You want to give to something in God's kingdom. And whether that's missions work or whether that's helping somebody out in need or whether that's giving to your church, whatever it is, it's your ability to give back to the God who's given you everything. 
And you just want to give. In the same way, sometimes with people that you know and love, you just, you just want to give gifts. And maybe you don't have the, the, um, the love language of gift giving. Not everybody has that love language. But if, if that's just your way of giving sometimes, you just want to give to these people that you care about. You just want to give to people that you love. That's kind of the idea here with giving at church. I love God, and I want to give back to him. And this is the amount that I can happily give to him. And again, I'm not saying it has to come to this church. There are many ways that you can give to the kingdom of God. Over the years, you'll find opportunities in missions. You'll find opportunities. Sometimes just somebody in the church has a need. And you just meet that need. This is what Paul's doing for the church in Jerusalem. He's saying, look, this church over here, this group of Christians just has a need. Let's just go meet that need right now. Whatever you can give cheerfully to that, it's more than they had, right? It's more than they had. And they're going to say, thank you. That's more than I had. Whatever it is, just give it cheerfully to the kingdom of God. Whatever you can do, give it according to your own purposes that you've made the decision to do it, not grudgingly or under compulsion. So verses uh, 8 through 11 here, he's going to give us a couple of more things that we can look at. Uh, He says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have uh, in abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad and gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So uh, he's going to go back to this idea of this reaping and sowing a little bit in verses 9 and 10. Uh, But this idea here uh, is that God is the one that provided everything for you. I love the way he starts this out. God is able. So just knowing that, that we serve a God who is able to provide for our needs. But he says it like this, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. In other words, God's the one that provided the abundance that you have to accomplish these things. Whether it's an abundance of time, an abundance of energy, an abundance of money, God provided those things to you so that you can meet other people's needs. The flow that he's really showing here is God in grace has given to you and you are imitating God by in grace giving to other people. An unmerited gift, an unearned favor. You just decide that you want to give. The church in Jerusalem was not owed this money. It was just something that the people of Corinth wanted to give. They were encouraged to give. They were excited to give. He's giving us just some very simple principles there. And again, if you give in such a way that you know that everything you have was given to you, you can give more cheerfully. Man, I was blessed so much when I was given to by God. Everything that I have was a gift from God. Therefore, I can, in some ways, imitate God by giving. I identify with God who is able, who is a giver. And I can do so cheerfully because everything that I have was given to me anyway. It's a different perspective, and it's a hard perspective, I think, um, in a westernized, maybe Americanized, uh, capitalistic Christianity view, 
where it's hard for us to see that everything we have was given to us by God because by golly, we worked hard our whole life to get here. I work 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week, and every penny in my paycheck was earned. And so we start to kind of take ownership over the possessions that we have. We start to come to this conclusion that everything we have is earned or deserved. But God's perspective is nothing existed until I made it. (laughs) Everything that existed was made by me for me and it's mine. And so if I hadn't created it, you wouldn't have it at all. It's just a flip of the mindset. It's just turning your brain to a a more uh, large-scale, God-viewed perspective on the existence of stuff and of money. That he's the source of all things. And so all the things that we have ultimately find their source in him. They find their existence in him. In him. So it's just a change of perspective. That's not telling us we shouldn't work hard. We shouldn't try to earn money. That's the processes as we go through in this world. But we just have to know at the heart of that, we couldn't do any of that if God hadn't given us the resources that we earn, the strength that we have, the life in our body, everything that we have that's investable here, everything that we have that's receivable here came from God. It's that same old joke of years ago where God talks about how he created everything and the scientists say, well, we can basically do everything you can do. God says, well, I made Adam out of dirt. And the scientist says, well, we can make Adam out of dirt. And God says, not that dirt, it's mine. (laughs) Make your own, (laughs) right? It's the idea behind this, that God is the source of everything. It's all provided by God. And if it's all been provided by God, it's a little bit easier for me now to take what was provided to me by God and give to the people that God created. He's using me. And it's a way for me to just give a little bit more cheerfully as I give. He talks about then out of Psalm 112, verse 9. This is the quote in verse 9. He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. When it says he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness, you might misread this and say that this is God who scattered, that this is God who gave to the poor, and it's God's righteousness that endures forever. But if you go back to Psalm 112, that's not the fact at all. The he in this passage is not God. The he in Psalm 112 is the godly man, the one who fears God. That's the he in this passage. And so what it's saying to the believer, the person who fears God, that you scatter abroad, you give to the poor, but the return on that investment that we saw, talked about in verse six, the harvest, here in verse nine, illustrated from the Psalms, and then clearly laid out in verse 10, it's that harvest of righteousness. He says his righteousness endures forever forever. The things that you do as acts of worship to God endure forever. A principle that we see in all kinds of places. I'm just going to take you on a a tour of some verses. Let's go to the book of Proverbs first. Uh, So Proverbs chapter 19. If you made it to the Psalms, just go one more book. Proverbs 19. Verse 17, just a general principle. But it says, One who is gracious to a poor man 
lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. One who lends to a poor man is actually lending to the Lord, and God will repay him for that deed. Again, sometimes financially, but sometimes just in these gifts of righteousness, or grace, or mercy, or friendship, or love. In some way, there's a return on that from God. I think it's a powerful picture that one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. Do you remember Jesus saying he was going to separate, separate the sheep and the goat at the end of time when he was going to judge people? And he says this, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was sick and you visited me. And the person says, I don't recall doing any of those things for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, as much as you did it for one of the least of these, you did it for me. So as you give to a poor man, as you lend to a poor man, you're actually giving to the Lord himself and he repays in that. Uh, The next verse we want to look at, this is Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, a couple of places there. Matthew 6 has some great insights, by the way, as well uh, in giving. Uh, We'll look in verses 3 and 4 here in Matthew 6. When you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be done in secret. But here we go. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So again, that same concept that God will reward you in some way for your giving. It's easier to give when you know that God's going to reward you for it. I can give a little bit more cheerfully knowing that I, hey, in the end, God's going to reward me in some way for this. Verses 20 and 21 Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, whether uh, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if your heart is in heaven, you're investing in the things of heaven. And there's some, there's some joy in that. I can do that cheerfully. Uh, the next one we want to look at is the book of Acts. Uh, this one to me uh, was really powerful for me when I was teaching through the book of Acts, and it almost... Uh, caught me off guard. Like I, I, I'd been through Acts before. I'd read this story before many times, but for whatever reason, this last time through the book of Acts, it really caught me off guard. It was something I hadn't anticipated. So uh, we have this story in Acts chapter 10 where Peter uh, goes and he meets Cornelius. Uh, this is the moment where Peter's gonna have this great vision about everything being clean, right? And so he has this kind of powerful moment. Well, this interesting thing happens. Cornelius in verse 30 of Acts chapter 10 Uh, is speaking here. He says, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. His giving to the poor has been remembered before God. Therefore, Send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is called Peter, to come to you. He's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So this guy Cornelius, because his prayers and his almsgiving were remembered before God, God says to him, I now want to use you in some powerful way in my kingdom plan. So powerfully used that he gets to hang out with the apostle Peter, and then God writes it down for everyone to know about it. A pretty cool thing. But, but the point here is, as you're giving these alms, it's remembered by God. God sees what you give. And he sees that in much the way that he sees any good work that we do. And he begins to trust you with the small things so that now he can entrust in you the bigger things. 
He's allowing you to be more involved in his kingdom work because he sees that you're trustworthy in the small things. So again, verse 10, the one who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, uh, for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. There's a return there on your investment. I can give more cheerfully because I know that God is going to give back in some way to those who give to him. And so in verse 11, you'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving in God, which we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a minute. There's something else that we receive from our giving. But verse 12, uh, for this ministry of service is not only fulfilling the supplies uh, and fulfilling supplying the, man, fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Now Paul even wants to take it one step further. You're not just providing for the needs of the people that you invest in. You're not just providing for the needs of the poor person maybe that you're helping out. In this case, you're not just providing for the needs of the church there in Jerusalem or the churches in the area of Judea. But he says something actually more powerful is happening there. As you give to that church, they will begin to overflow with thanksgiving to God. So you're giving to them causes them to worship God. It actually increases the worship of God, the work that you do. He says it like this in verse 13, the proof given by this ministry will cause them to glorify God for your obedience to the gospel. Not just obedience random, obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution. That, that concept there, that people will begin to give thanks to God for you. People will begin to glorify God because of what you've done. It's something we see in other places in Scripture. Uh, I'll take you real quick. First uh, Peter chapter two. Verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in everything or in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. They may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of, test, of, the day of his visitation. It's just the idea that the, the good things that you do in the name of God become a, testify, uh, a testimony of him, a testimony of the gospel, and it will help lead people to glorifying God. <clears throat> Jesus says it a little bit different in Matthew chapter 5, but the same concept. Matthew five sixteen. Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I can give cheerfully because as I give, it leads others to praise and to glorify and to give thanks to God. It's another reason that I can give cheerfully. It helps us kind of think through this idea of giving. And then lastly there in verse 14, it says this, they also by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. And then those who've received giving from you, who've received blessing from you, 
It causes them to yearn for you, to, to love you. It causes them to pray for you. They may not be able to repay you, but they can repray for you, right? They, they can't necessarily give you the money back because they had needs, but now because you've invested in them, they love you, they care about you. They begin to pray for you. And I always like to think of it like this. Not that I think that this is probably a literal equation in heaven. Like the more times my name is said before God, the better if off that is for me, right? But to me, it's just, it's just kind of a cool concept. I love the fact that people lift my name up before God to pray for me. If I've got something horrible going on in my life and I know one person is praying for me, that's powerful to me. If I know a hundred people are praying for me, all I know is God is hearing my name over and over and over and over again, and I'm all for that. When I'm in need, when I'm in sin, I'm not so sure I want him hearing my name as often, but when I'm in need, just hearing my name over and over, it just this idea being brought to remembrance before the God of the universe is so powerful. And again, it helps me give cheerfully. But the basis of all of this is that they glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel. Whereas he said here, the surpassing grace in verse 14 of God in you. All of this is just a response to the gospel. His final verse there in verse 15 before he changes the subject next week. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Not your indescribable gift, not what you gave. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The whole idea here goes right back to this, and it is an interesting thing that happens. He starts talking about money in chapter 8, and in chapter 8, verse 1, he talks about it of the grace of God which was given. And then he stops talking about money in verses 14 and 15, talking about the surpassing grace of God in you, his indescribable gift. So rooted in the basis of our giving is that we were those who were the receivers of God's grace. And as receivers of grace, we now imitate God by being gracious givers. Now, when you put all of that together, it helps you be able to give cheerfully because you don't see it as wasted money. One of the big problems I think we have sometimes in helping poor people is we just assume they're cheating us. We just assume like the guy that's on the street corner is going to make tons of money. And you know what? He might be. He might be. That guy could probably pull in $1,000 in a day and I wouldn't know. Does that change the fact that I get to model the life of Jesus Christ when I give him my $5 bill? It doesn't. But you're being cheated. No, I'm not. No. He's being cheated. He's being cheated because he's somewhere decided that if he lived his life for himself, apart from Jesus Christ, doing things his own way, that he could somehow be happy by getting enough stuff or taking enough stuff from other people. But eternally, he'll be destroyed. But my almsgiving will be remembered before God. And my inheritance will be an eternal righteousness, an eternal joy in the presence of God. I'm not saying give the guy everything you got. <laughs> Sheila and I have made purposeful plans over the years, and those have changed from time to time. We do it in different ways at different times. Years ago, my plan was uh, very cavalier. 
I kept McDonald's gift certificates in my pocket. And if somebody said need food, I would pick them up in my car. I would take the McDonald's. I would sit there with them. I would eat a meal with them. I would share the gospel with them. And I would tell Sheila she was allowed to do none of that. I don't want her hanging out with strange people. They're all dangerous murderers. <laughs> Turns out that's an unfair way of looking at things. And so... <laughs> We came up with a new plan. We have these little bags that we would keep in our car, right? And then she would just roll down the window just enough to get the bag out. And I'm like, that's enough. And she would hand the bag out the window. It's got stuff in there for the person. But just, just various ways that we determined to give. I don't always like to give cash because I don't necessarily want them going out and turning it into a drug habit. But if there are ways that we can give, we can give. And one of the things we've found over the years is some people just don't want the little bag. They only want the cash. And that begins to tell me what their real need is. We found ways to give. Not worried about being cheated because it's unmerited favor. It's grace. I know they didn't earn it. That's why it's called a gift. But as I do that, I model a picture of my Savior Jesus Christ who, when we didn't deserve forgiveness of sins, forgave us anyway. Oh, we praise God. We give thanks to God for his indescribable gift. Amen? Well, God loves a cheerful giver. So our prayer is that we can learn to give cheerfully. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for all the folks that you've allowed to be a part of our congregation over the years. We recognize fully that um, so much of what we have and so much of what we do as a church is supplied 100% by the love of the people in the church. And Father, for all these cheerful gifts that have been given over the years, that have paid salaries and built buildings and sent out missionaries and provided for benevolence and uh, bought coffee and donuts and cookies for the coffee shop and Bibles for the kids' ministry and Bibles to be handed out at church. Lord, you've done so much to these wonderful gifts. And for those things, Lord, we glorify your name and we give thanks to you that you taught us how to give by being a giving God. Lord, I pray that nobody would walk out of here feeling any compulsion from me or from the word, but instead they would just seek in their heart how best they can give to your kingdom and they can do it cheerfully. When they find themselves moving beyond cheerfully, they would just back it up a little bit. They would examine their own heart, examine their own motives. Or they would begin to examine the scriptures and, and realize the great benefits of giving, the great joy that we can have in giving. Or the times that people will be praying for them, or the times that you will be remembering their good gifts and returning on that investment with a harvest of righteousness. Father, we thank you. We love you today. In Jesus' name. Amen.